0: It's a lot like science in the sense that a lot of these things are prone to failure and you just keep tweaking things as you learn. I think what you have to understand is that those failures are going to happen and that they're normal and they're a necessary part of building anything. And you can either get disheartened by that or you can learn from it and move on.
1: That was Dr. Palmvir Bahia. And this is the Natural Born Thinkers podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to Natural Born Thinkers, a podcast designed to help you live a more creative lifestyle. My name is Sam Hunter, and my job is to help people tap into their creative potential to solve their biggest individual and business challenges. I set up this podcast to reveal the secret source behind the creative thinking process and to provide a perspective on how we can live a life that enables us to more confidently draw upon our natural creativity. I believe that our minds are all uniquely wired to think differently and that the world depends on our diverse creative potential. Today's podcast is with Dr. Palmvir Bahia, or PB, as she is more fondly known. PB is a great friend of mine and also just happens to be a neuroscientist, entrepreneur and science communicator. We met years ago when I first started dating my now husband and it's only really since starting this podcast that I have truly come to understand PB's story and the amazing things that she is doing. At the same time as being a senior scientist at the lab she works in in Florida, PB is also the CEO of a social venture called Scientist Inc., which seeks to create unique connections between people and science. Our conversation is rich with insights about the creative thinking process, as PB shares that science is creativity. PB talks about the importance of asking questions to deliver insights and shares how collaboration across backgrounds, specialties, and industries is critical to advance scientific discovery. PB also highlights the importance of having the courage to pursue your ambitions, and that just like a science experiment, trial and error is part of the process. Critically, she shares the message that failure should not be feared, but embraced. In addition, this podcast impresses the fact that creativity does not discriminate. All ideas deserve to be heard, and in fact, it is the diversity of thought and intersection of ideas that will help to enable breakthrough. Perhaps you are not someone who feels desperately connected to the scientific world today. But the reality is, most of us use scientific principles every day without realising. Our voices matter when it comes to scientific challenges, whether we express this through our politics, our actions, or our ideas diversifying the dialogue about some of the world's biggest scientific challenges will ultimately make better science. So PB, welcome to Natural Born Thinkers. Thanks for joining us today. Of course. Thank you for having me, Sam. Well, I should share a little bit more other than you're clearly a very close friend of mine. Um, But other than being my friend, you're also a neuroscientist, a communicator and CEO. And you're also you're own podcast host so I feel a little bit intimidated today to make sure I do a good job (laughs) because this is my first and you're 31st or more
0: (laughs) it comes it comes after time it's it's all about practice like most things
1: well, to be fair, you do do yours in a pub with a drink in hand, and uh, it's three o'clock in the afternoon here, and I just have a cup of water, so I, I feel like I'm already at a disadvantage.
0: <laughs> well, you understand what our recipe is then to make sure people are more comfortable, is just make sure they're intoxicated.
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to intoxicate everyone with your story instead. How's that? <laughs>
0: Uh, I know I feel intimidated.
1: (laughs) So do the listeners. Um, So (laughs) before we do get started let's provide the listeners with a little bit of a background about you. So first of all you were raised and educated in London and uh, PB started her neuroscience career in the UK and then moved to Tampa Florida 10 years ago where you now work at the University of South Florida researching the role of sensory nerves in disorders of the airways and visceral pain yes indeed
0: weirdly i'm a neuroscientist who has spent very little time working on the brain which is what most people will uh, associate the, the term with but um yeah so i am interested in the sensory nerves which as the name implies they sense what's happening within our body and kind of outside of that to inform the brain what's happening so they are really important in um protecting us from for example painful stimuli so you know you stick your hand on a hot plate that's picked up by your sensory nerves which triggers a reflex to make sure that your muscles contract and you kind of get yourself away from that pain but for the last 10 years or so uh, my boss Tom Taylor-Clark works on the sensory nerves in the lungs and the airways So similarly, um, when you get a crumb or something trapped in your airway, just like you have that painful reflex, you have the cough reflex. So your sensory nerves pick up that that thing is there. And it is really, really bad if those things get into your lungs. So they trigger the muscles um, to force your lungs to expel that thing from your airways. So you
1: cough. You know, it's so fascinating. The body is is fascinating and the mind particularly and there's everyone out there obsessed about the power of artificial intelligence and where that computers are basically going to take us next and then we have this wonderful natural computer in our head that manages our body that can tell us there's a crumb in our lung and also can help us think have emotions and do all of that so a lot of time we need to spend is actually focusing and understanding our own mind that leads us to uh, another part and we're going to get much more into all of your research and this next part i'm about to introduce but another part of what you do is to have your own you have your own organization scientist inc whose mission is to inspire the love of science in everyone by creating unique connections between non-scientists and scientists because somewhere along the lines from outside of school, we tend to forget or we seem to forget about deep science that is changing our world and changing the way in which we know ourselves. And uh, it's super fascinating that you set this up. And um, In fact, my husband and I were reflecting after having a chat with a lady the other day that we didn't know that Pluto wasn't a planet anymore, just to prove the point that <laughs> there is a disconnect between science once you've left school. So, you know, that's just a small example of, of where that disconnect is. And just to provide a little bit more introduction, Scientist Inc. includes podcasts, your podcast with two scientists to help scientists tell their story in a podcast format You also have Taste of Science, which is an adult science fair, which I just think is the coolest thing. I don't know why they're not bigger. I don't know why. I haven't attended one yet. I need to go. And you also sponsor uh, other folk who are are trying to achieve the same aim as you, and one of those being a lady who started a stand-up comedy show designed to educate and entertain others in science. So that's just a little flavour of, Of the work that you're trying to do outside of your research which is to help educate people like me who like to think i'm a pretty smart person (laughs) more um in in the matters of science
0: yeah i think the one of the things that drove me to do this is like a lot of people we appreciate that science has often been held at a kind of distance from people you hear lots of talk about the ivory tower for example and the fact that, oh, well, you know, people are just, they're not specialized in this. They, they won't be able to understand, blah, blah, blah. But this is, I think, a culture that is changing now and a lot more. Um, certainly, I see in younger researchers coming up that they have this appreciation for the need to disseminate scientific information. And honestly, the idea that people won't understand is preposterous. The idea is that they just don't speak the same language. So for me, it's a matter of being able to translate scientific ideas to people in a way that's not only understandable, but something that they appreciate, something that they want to listen to. So I think uh, it is is kind of unfair to say to a lot of people that, oh, well, they lost interest in science after school. I think a lot of people just don't have science taught to them very well while they're in school. And, you know, you get laden with these really dry and boring facts, and it's just it's not appealing to a lot of people, especially when you're also taught that, you know, it's not necessarily about creativity, which uh, if you speak to a lot of scientists now, they'll say the exact opposite. Science is very creative, and it needs people to be thinking creatively in order to answer problems. But going back to science communication and outreach, I think you have to be uh, intentional and understanding of your audience when you're creating this content. So I'm quite active on Twitter and I follow a lot of people who talk about the subject. And recently I was speaking to, or following an account called I Am SciCom, which is a rotating account where different science communicators come in and uh, talk to people about their their work and how they uh, kind of disseminate research. And there was uh, a scientist who's originally from India and now I believe in Boston, But she talked about language barriers and following that for the first time ever, I mean, I've I've spoken to my parents about my research before, but I'm kind of lazy about how I do it. And for the first time ever, I tried to explain to my mom in Punjabi what my research was. And it's the first time I've ever seen her eyes kind of light up and acknowledge what I was doing. She's like, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, you know, your aunt's got really bad asthma. Is that why? And she started asking a series of questions which had never happened before. So a lot of this work involves thinking a lot harder about how you're going to do it and not just throwing out scientific information and hoping it's going to stick with people.
1: Well, that's really great because literally the example you just shared there is that if you use the language right, if you can communicate right, you can literally open up someone's eyes with information that they didn't have before, which then triggers something in their mind, makes a new connection, and they can then start to think differently and make new connections and ask different questions. And, you know, there's no better time to have this conversation now, to be honest, when we're all sat here waiting for scientists to figure out the answer to get us out the house. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Yet there, we have our connection with them is diluted by politics and the news. So it's great that there are people out there like yourself who's trying to bridge that gap so that we can all start to have our own connections and start to have our own thoughts around scientific, obviously hot topics like COVID and climate change, but so much more. So PB, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today because I think there's a lot that we can learn Not only about the creative process, as you mentioned, science is creative, but also how we can get more engaged in the scientific world if we're not already. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Let's just go with the, how did you get into science? Because you you brought up your mum and it's prompted me to think to how this all started for you, because I think getting into science was both easy and challenging for you, so... How old were you when you realised you wanted to pursue a career in science? And can you highlight that moment where you knew that science was for you?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, So I feel like this is actually a two-parter in the sense that when I was at school, I realised that what I was good at was science and maths. But coming from an immigrant family, I think the expectation was that I would use that science to go into something respectable like medicine or pharmacy or something equally stable <laughs> as a profession. And I decided that actually, I really liked the idea of doing a subject like pharmacology. So that's how drugs affect the body. And I naively, when I started my undergraduate degree, thought, oh, okay, I'm going to get this degree, and then I will go and work for a pharmaceutical company, and I'm going to develop drugs to cure diseases, as if it was going to be that easy. <laughs> and then I discovered how long it actually takes to do the basic research, and if it works for that drug to come onto the market as a treatment for something.
1: It was like seven years? Seven. seven yeah, years.
0: yeah. I think it's seven to ten years, I believe, if you talk about all the kind of regulations and things. So um, that, that was clearly not going to be the, uh, the instant hit <laughs> that I was hoping for. <laughs> but on top of that, the, the longer I stayed there, I, I realized that actually it was academic science that seemed more appealing to me, except it wasn't until I became an undergraduate that I appreciated that could be a career path. And I, I think it was when I went and worked in a pharma company as part of my uh, study, so I did a sandwich degree, so I spent a year working in Germany, that I thought to myself, you know, this this is cool, but really, I like the university environment, and there's something about that that appealed to me more than working for a pharma company. And so I must have been at least 21 before I thought, you know, I'm going to go and do a PhD. This, this is where... I'm headed and I think I need the PhD to be able to do the kind of science and the kind of research that I enjoy. So it took a long time, I think, before I realized that was going to be my path. It was a slow realization and potentially my mentor when I was an undergraduate student, so my personal tutor, was someone who kind of framed it to me in a way that suggested, well, you know, maybe you should think about doing a PhD and going on. So that's, that's kind of where things became difficult for me because as I say my my parents are immigrants so they they come from rural Punjab in the north of India and they are therefore quite conservative in their beliefs and so they in their minds they either I was going to do something like pharmacy or medicine or I was going to get married to a nice young man and just find whatever job to go on and you know go and have babies in a family and do the things that you're expected to do. And instead, I dug in my heels and I fought with my mum about doing a PhD because she said, you know, if this much level of education, no one's going to want to marry you. And essentially, that that was kind of a priority. And it it sounds awful. At the same time, I think my mum was reflecting on personal experiences. So she... She was similarly stubborn while she was in India. So she was a teacher and she went as far as getting a master's in economics. But the entire time, like her her family just, like all of her sisters got married before her. And she was constantly told that, you know, you, you're just going to be very difficult. And, you know, for for an Indian woman, she got married relatively late at the age of 27. So I think she, she already had this feeling that, you know, I I don't want your life to be as hard as it was for me. And so, you know, some of that was coming from a place of care. And then the rest is is honestly that they came from ultimately a very sexist society. And with three daughters, they're just thinking to themselves, well, you know, how can we kind of make sure that our daughters move from our household to their husband's household? So we've done our jobs.
1: I think a lot of people will be able to recognize with rebelling against what parents would like you to do I know that my dad wanted me to do an English degree and I in Scotland Mm -hmm. and I wasn't going to do that no 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 I was going to go to Bath and do a management degree which is what I did that was just my father's investment in understanding what I'm most talented at which was English not maths and science (laughs) Mm -hmm. although he's an accountant so I think he would have liked it to have been maths Um, but you know he wanted me to go and do what I was good at which is a really honourable thing and I really respect him for that but when you're 18 you seem to make up your mind and off you go but I think Mm -hmm. what was harder for you is that you had to go against family convention which again is a wonderful thing and cultural convention but at the same time it can appear or can be limiting when you have views or aspirations that go against what that is. Yeah, I listened to, I think it's Stories Collide, your story where you talked about this very emotionally. And after two kids, I think my emotions are more open than they used to be. So I started crying. (laughs) Um, So let's not go there for everyone. (laughs) Um, But it's very worth listening to for those who are interested in hearing more of PB's story, because it really does demonstrate how brave you were and how emotional a story this is to you. And reflecting back on it, You you know, what did it feel like, or other than coming head to head with your mom and saying, I'm going to do this, like, what gave you the courage to move forwards? Because as much as making your mind up that you want to doing it, having the courage to go and make it happen is another thing.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it was courage so much as stubbornness. (laughs) I, I had decided that this was the thing I was going to do. So I, you know, as far as what my parents wanted me to do, I... Said to them, look, I have been the good child that you wanted me to. So I wasn't allowed to go out and hang out with my friends at high school. Um, you know, I don't think I went to the cinema with my friends until I was sixteen or something. So there was there was no like hanging out in parks or doing anything else. And I said, look, I've I've done everything you wanted me to, and I got the grades that you asked me to, and I went to university and. You know, I I don't do drugs and I don't do this and that. So I feel like I fulfilled my part of the bargain and I should be able to do this. And eventually, you know, Mum kind of gave in. And I guess I managed to communicate to her to some degree that this this is still kind of, you know, a respectable profession and it's something worth doing because, okay, while I won't be dispensing medicines or I won't be dispensing treatments, I do the research to help create them. Right. Yeah. So um, that probably helped in some sense, and also the fact that I moved back down to London to be close to my family. From you know having done my undergraduate degree in Manchester, uh, which you know if you live in the US, that's, it seems like no distance at all. But if you live in the UK, um, you it's know the it was, it's the other end of the
1: world. <laughs>
0: it's the other end of the world, quite. Um, so yeah, I, I came closer to home, and so I, I guess there were a lot of things that then kind of swung in my favour as far as that goes.
1: Was, you, you yeah you filled your end of the bargain as you said, and then made some compromises, and also put a really good story in a way that they could connect with about what the power of your research or your pursued path would be, because a doctor's not going to be as good as their job without the right medication. And no one's going to know what medicine to apply unless someone's figured out what the body needs. So yeah, it <laughs> uh, makes perfect sense. You you obviously said there that you did your pharmacology degree at the University of Manchester and came back down south where you did your PhD in pharmacology. So you were still at this point in London on your pathway to becoming a pharmacologist. And you mentioned that a mentor Opened your eyes to don't necessarily need to go and work in a pharmaceutical. Why don't you get in the lab and start doing the the research? So it sounds as though you had a well placed person who you really respected at the right time of where you needed to make a decision to help you go on your next part of your adventure into neuroscience research. I
0: think the the kind of it gets a bit confusing when you're talking about switching from pharmacology to neuroscience because. Um, I think the, the reason it's called a pharmacology degree is just because I was in the Department of Pharmacology. but essentially when you break down the research I was doing, I was doing both. I was doing pharmacology of the kind of the, the nervous system. So I think as scientists we kind of get to self-identify as what we are, um, you, you have an affinity for uh, which aspect of the research I think really appeals to you because my lab work now, any given day, I could call myself a biochemist. I could call myself um, someone who does physiology. So it's it's a little bit arbitrary to some degree. Um, I think for me, neuroscience just sounds cool. <laughs> Even though I don't work on the brain, the association with working on something that's connected to the brain, I think is really cool. Um, and actually this week is uh, one where Twitter is going to see an influx of Um, black neuroscientists. So in light of kind of recent conversations people have been having with regards to racism um, There are a number of groups who've kind of coalesced around specific scientific fields to uh, Kind of share their research with people. So there's there's one Specifically dedicated to black in neuro and that kicked off just today. So I will be watching that
1: with interest That's really cool though because I think there's a couple of things in that. So the first thing is that you get to wear multiple different hats of different types of science in your in the work that you do. And also, as you mentioned there, having new voices come to the table who perhaps haven't had, I guess, the opportunity to to be heard. It's hard not to carry on on that point right now because also yourself, as you mentioned, your family is from India. You're born and raised in the UK, but you are an indian woman and you have a prominent voice in the science industry now with your scientist Inc. and all the work that you're doing in the lab have you found um that the color of your skin or even indeed the fact that you're a woman has ever impacted your career in the scientific world
0: i would say from kind of very close viewing i don't think so I've been in a very privileged position in that sense, because I know that actually the number of academics, going back to the UK, black and brown academics are hugely underrepresented in any field of science. And there was a Guardian piece not that long ago, suggesting that part of this is because they don't feel accepted. They don't see people who look like them within academia and science. And so they don't feel like it's a place for them. And I will say that my career could have gone very, very differently because I, too, have I haven't had a single black or brown mentor in my entire career, at least not someone who was directly supervising me. And uh, it's by sheer luck, I think, that I've had uh, a long string of very kind, middle-class, middle-aged white dudes looking after me (laughs) who kind of believed in me and my abilities That I got to do what I wanted to do, but there are so many people who their experiences are very, very different from mine. And that's not something that can be easily
1: overlooked. The fact that you haven't had a mentor who has the same skin colour as yourself, someone who you can identify with in that way, is really why society has to change. I'm
0: thankful to say that a lot of my friends are, you know, they, they are cognizant of these things. Because one of the things that I have to say, you know, I didn't feel like I was necessarily being judged, but I did feel this, this idea of imposter syndrome, mm. which I think I started hearing because of the many, many people that I follow within science on social media. And it's this idea that you, you know, you're, you're not as good as other people. And somehow you've ended up in this position just because you need to fulfill a quota or whatever else. And, you know, that's that's pretty hard to, to reconcile. And you realize there are certain things about your, your personality that you change. And my accent is certainly not something that is kind of native to the area of London that I come from. So I know that there are certain things about my presence, my presentation that I, I changed to, to make sure that I was kind of accepted within the, the group of people that I was around all the time.
1: Which, I mean, in, you are you here in the States? I know that there are people uh, down in the deep South who change their accent, even within America, whether they be white or African-American, mm-hmm. because they want to come across a particular way in a corporation. And it's just crazy uh, that, we, that we do this, that we change our voice, we change our identity to fit in, which is inherently, I, I mean, it goes against really what diversity is all about yeah you know going back to what you're saying about imposter syndrome and how you've had to change you, you know this is another barrier you came across cultural and family convention you pushed through that and you've pushed your way through into the science world and you are now doing the work that you love in the university of south florida and you're in your comfort zone. You're in the lab, which is, I know, the place that you love to be.
0: Sure. One of my friends shared this tweet about a child who received the science kit. And most of it involves like transferring liquids between tubes. And, you know, if I'm doing molecular biology, that's essentially what I'm doing is just transferring clear tu- liquids from one tube to another and then heating it for a bit. And it's very much like cooking. And if you looked at my protocol, it would look like a recipe for something that you were trying to to prepare to eat. So, you know, I add this chemical to this chemical, heat it to this temperature for this period, and then at the end of it, I will try and look at whatever it is I've created in a manner that's measurable. Um, but alternatively, because our lab is a neuroscience lab, there is work that we do on live cells or that we use whole animals to do studies for. And so those kinds of experiments will quite often require me dissecting out a tissue, uh, separating out those cells using enzymes. And while, yes, you, we have the stereotype of me having to look down a microscope to identify where those cells are on on the dish that they're growing in usually we can then switch that view to a camera which allows me to see on a nice big screen uh, so i don't have to be squinting down uh, a microscope all the time from that stage usually with the live cells that we have i'm trying to understand something about their electrical behavior so there are a couple of cool ways we can do this so i work on a channel protein now, I, I'm always trying to work out how best to explain these things without using too much jargon, since this is essentially my jam. Um, <laughs> yeah. But these, these things are, as the, the name suggests, it's a channel, so it's a protein that sits in the outer membrane of a nerve cell. And what they do is when they're, they're stimulated by something, so this particular protein we're worried about because it detects things like pollution in the airways, and once you breathe something unpleasant in, these things open up and they allow positive charge to rush into nerve cells, and it's that build-up of positive charge that allows the nerve cells to signal. So yeah, as you you're breathing in these kind of pollutants and things, it opens up this this channel protein which is nicknamed the wasabi receptor. Oh, that's so cool. It's, yeah, it's the same thing in your mouth that when you when you eat things like wasabi or mustard or so on, those kinds of really pungent foods, um, yeah. they give you that tingling taste. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's the same kind of uh, protein.
1: It's the same reaction, but just...
0: In the lungs. In the lungs. Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So, those nerve cells can then say, oh, we breathed in something really unpleasant. They signal to the brain and the brain can send out signals via a different set of nerves. To say, okay, well, maybe we need to start uh, contracting the muscle. Maybe we need to start releasing some mucus to get rid of whatever this unpleasantness is. And so we create a model of this by using those individual cells in a dish. I can stick on those same kinds of chemicals and I can see if that channel opens up. And we can use these really cool fluorescent dyes that will then rush into the cell. And it shows those cells lighting up if they've responded to whatever that chemical is.
1: But that's the thing that I find so fascinating, which is I can get my head around how you go about putting, you know, injecting the dye in to see the impact, but how do you know what to do? Like, where do you get the question from to say, Hey, why don't we go and see what happens if we do this to the channel protein? So can you share a little bit about the I guess this is the creative part of science to say where do i start
0: yeah i think a lot of where you start though is drudgery a lot of it is uh reading around on the subject and then a good part of it is actually just spent talking to other people so i find myself talking to my colleagues in the lab even though we work on quite disparate projects so a lot of labs you'll have lots of people working on the same thing it just so happens that our lab is you know we have quite detached projects from each other and you know my, my boss is a bit weird in the sense that he doesn't do the typical lab meetings that other other groups do so we just end up if we're sitting around having lunch we'll just say oh how are things going and in the process of explaining what I'm doing, even though my colleague is not necessarily going to be able to give me direct input, and through the process of the questions they're asking me, I'm thinking to myself, oh, okay, hang on a minute. Is is this happening because of this? So, yeah, it's not necessarily that they're, they're giving me the information, but by asking the questions, they're kind of extracting that from me, if that makes sense. And the, the same goes with talking to my boss. Like, we'll, we'll sit down and just go through what I did for a particular experiment and some of it will be very very boring just tweaking okay well now I'm going to repeat this just adjusting this one little thing but every now and again it's a bit more oh well hang on a minute this really weird thing happened okay what does that mean so yes there's there's various ways of looking at the problem for me I find that it, it comes out through the course of talking to other people
1: and uh, another few things that I I noticed in what you said which is so first off, asking a good question um, and mm-hmm. having a having a dialogue and asking questions and talking about what those potential answers might be, and they always say that. I think, it, well, Einstein said if he had an hour to save the world, he'd spend 50 minutes on coming up with the question and 10 minutes on yeah. thinking about the answer. And I think so often the question asking part of it is forgotten, particularly in the corporate world, where they're like, here's the problem, go fix it. No one ever yeah. sits there to judge whether that is actually the problem and question the problem, which is always, you know, if you have the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. So, um, (laughs) but I think in your world, there isn't necessarily a, a wrong question. There are lots of different questions and try different things on to see what the breakthrough might be. And another piece that you said was when You didn't give it much airtime, but it's, I think, really interesting is that you said, hey, I have my recipe, I go in with my recipe, and I might change just a small thing the next time round, and then a small thing the next time round. But I actually think that's really insightful. That's a super important part of science is the fact that it's what we refer to as an
0: iterative process. So yeah, we don't think that the entire thing is going to be wrong. We think to ourselves, okay, well, maybe there's a component of this that hasn't been optimized yet and partly i think it's telling that a lot of the techniques that as a biologist and a neuroscientist i use are very very expensive and if you've if you've invested a lot of time and effort and money into something you know you don't want to have to throw it away unless you come to the conclusion that you know this really isn't working and that comes about because you think that well actually we've tried to repeat it uh, in all good faith this many times and we do not see something of value coming out of this. And it, it, again, it's sometimes it means that the you're not asking the right question, and sometimes it means that unfortunately it could be as stupid as you know one of the reagents you're using is wrong or it expired or you know it could be any number of things. And for me, unfortunately, I think this is why people have a hard time understanding why why can't science just fix things? Like why don't we have a cure for cancer already? And it's because there are a billion and one different pieces that go into any one train of thought, any field of research. And I think people are starting to discover this as they're, they're reading up on the research. Like I don't think anyone has ever so intently focused on the science in a single field before COVID-19. Now, everybody's a, an armchair scientist, epidemiologist, call it what you will, but I think Some people are starting to realize in real time, this is what science is like. You can say something one day, but that does not change the fact that we did that in all good faith. This was the consensus at that point in time. But you know, you have enough people working on something and you have consistent evidence that suggests something else. It's not that that original idea was wrong, it's that that was the best information we had at the time. We need to keep building on things and not throwing things away necessarily.
1: Yeah, building up and not knocking out um to and as you said, to have that iterative build. But I think another thing that you you're starting to raise there is everyone's um expectation of science is well, sorry, I shouldn't I shouldn't say that. I should say what I feel. Sometimes I've had the perception that in science that it inherently is about trial and error. That you're not There isn't a, okay, fine, there might be a precise methodology, but there isn't an immediate methodology for an immediate answer. Otherwise, we'd have zero problems in the world, Uh, (laughs) which, while being nice, is just never going to happen like that. Is there a culture of trial and error in science? You mentioned things are quite expensive. So I imagine there is a constraint, and you suffer from the same constraints that we all do in that money is an issue. Is it like that? Do you get to have? fun and trial and error, or are there pressures that mean, you, hey, PB, can we get the answer and can we get it now? And can it be right, please?
0: <laughs> I would say there are probably lab groups and researchers out there that do feel that pressure. I think at some point there was a, a switch within how science is done from it being just something that inquisitive people did because they were interested to something that is a lot more corporate. So you look at how people are assessed in terms of their research and the simplest ways to assess whether somebody is a success or not is how much grant funding did they get how many papers have they published you know how many graduate students have they managed to graduate through this system and those are you know not necessarily going back to the conversation we had about you know diversity within science but you can see how that would potentially limit The the kind of people who get to the top because certain people have more privilege than others. I mean, I think it's unfortunate that scientists feel this pressure because they they know that if they don't get the publications, they won't get promoted. Um, So I suspect there is a lot of work that is potentially rushed in the name of fulfilling quotas. But, you know, I, I have to say, again, I personally have not experienced that. And I've always been able to enjoy my work and we've been funded enough that for the most part we've been able to answer the questions that we wanted to it's just every now and again we find okay that that drug is insanely expensive there's no way we're forking out for that like is there another way and usually there are ways that you can adapt the experiments so that they're you know maybe they're not as fancy but sometimes you don't need fancy sometimes you just need appropriate and well-designed people like fancy because you're more likely to get published in the journals that have the most impact just because they're the most famous
1: and it looks sexy yes sexy science that's the one it just sounds as though it doesn't matter where you are whether you're in a science lab or you're in a big organization there's a there's a game to be played there's a system to game and it's all there if you want if you want to win in that way and yeah and it makes sense that there are things in place for people to succeed like that. But there is a compromise to the maverick, to the person who doesn't want to play that game, who has ideas and wants to have fun and create them outside of it. And I think, I know that I've definitely been one of those people and have, you know, never necessarily been top of the game for that reason. But I think if there weren't people out there who didn't want to play like that, perhaps you wouldn't get some of the breakthroughs and insights and ideas that people are very capable of having outside of that arena, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you shared with me when we spoke that you wanted to stay in the lab. You didn't want to take that managerial responsibility. Your heart and soul was doing the science. And I think I think that's a really interesting message for people because it's okay to just do what you love in a creative space. You don't have to play the game and claw your way up to the top and losing perhaps your passion and what you love doing on the way.
0: Yeah, I'm very, very lucky in that I was able to stay in a position as a kind of a senior scientist within the lab and i get paid to carry on doing that whereas a lot of other people they feel pressure either to move on in the system like you know once you've done that 1st postdoctoral role after getting your phd you're expected to start applying for funding and to go for you know to run your own lab as an independent researcher and i guess i pictured that happening at some stage and then i realized you know i really really don't want to do that and my husband also david He's someone who is running his own group, and he is like he's very talented, very smart guy, very well funded as well. And he, I think, he enjoys his work, but it, essentially he he has ended up in that managerial position that I didn't necessarily want to do. And so now working from home, watching him like eighty percent of his life is sitting in meetings, and that did not appeal to me. I think the slight difference for him is that so he is a, a theoretical scientist and. In his case, he is helping biologists and physicians create mathematical models of cancer. And for him, he doesn't have, if we're talking about what an experimental day looks like for a scientist, he doesn't do experiments. He talks to the biologists and physicians. He gets data. He gets an understanding of what the biology looks like in their models. And then they create are essentially equations that they plug into a computer program and it helps to inform the research that the biologists and physicians are doing. And their work has been proven to be kind of so well aligned with bi- what biologists see in their experiments that they're actually starting to inform clinical trials. So yeah, if you're talking about getting to a managerial position. Essentially, his what he does in terms of his daily work hasn't changed that much. So he, he still has to talk to people all the time. And then he spends some time programming. But yeah, for me, it would have been quite the shift to, to start looking after a lab group and informing the experiments and writing grants and papers that I really had no interest in doing. And I'm okay with being paid less for having a quality of life that is what I enjoy. So I know that I, I go into the lab, I do my work. I might think of things outside of that, but I'm not expected to work weekends. I have a life. <laughs> yeah. So that that was what the priority was for me.
1: Well, and I think that's, it's so respect. I, I mean, it's really admirable. because um, You know, I, I remember, and this is just a total sidebar, but I remember meeting uh, a woman in a wine tasting who whose job it was to go out and source all the wines and, she didn't make that much money and she didn't care because Mm -hmm. she had the labor of love, which isn't a term that is used very often. And I, I find, um, you know, people can dismiss it because it means oh, labor of love or you don't earn that much money. Um, and who, who cares? (laughs) Why, why does money have to be the benchmark of success? I, um, I think for a lot of people it is. And, um, I think that's, limiting um but I, i think another thing that you said which also can't go unmentioned we can't go past david's work because it's super interesting and i think brings another angle to the creative process of science where he's getting to, he's literally, it sounds as though he's literally getting to play with the elements and saying, What if we did this? Really trying to discover through that process. Did I pick up on the vibe right there of the work that David's doing from a creative standpoint?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's, he along with his colleagues, you'll see, if you're thinking about, a creative process maybe you imagine an artist with like a notebook or something that they draw and doodle in all the time that's that's very much david like he's got this stack of moleskins that he uses for sketching out what a model would look like and a lot of his work is just sitting there and thinking about okay well how might this play out if this happened so a lot of his work is also as a, a science kind of a form of science communication because Mathematicians, biologists and doctors, medical doctors, don't have the same language in any way. So I think maybe one perception of science is that scientists can just talk to each other. They really can't. And, you know, I think they, they spent a good few years trying to work out how to communicate what they were trying to do within their work, which is just completely different from what a biologist does. So that that lends a different lens to answering a question, but at the same time, it meant that they spent a lot of time talking to biologists and they, they had to think about their work in completely different ways. So for example, a mathematician wants to know in this cell, how long will it take this chemical, for example, to diffuse? How long will it take this chemical to move from this part of the cell to the other part of the cell? Because that is something that's going to be necessary for them to plug into their model. Whereas a biologist is going to say, I have no idea. I I don't know how that works and I don't know how I'd measure it. And so both sides are now having to to think quite differently about how they approach this, this singular problem they're trying to work on together. So I guess it's not just him, it's it's the colleagues that he works with too.
1: Oh, uh, So they have to, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, because I can totally understand why a mathematician would ask those questions, because you need like a, a time component to measure speed. So often we go into meetings or experiences with people where they're like, well, what's this? Have you got this? Where's that? People lead with for their own creative process what they must get rather than taking yeah. a step back and saying okay you know it goes back to what's the question mm-hmm. what what have you got what have i got and how do we pull it together um and change the way we come at something which is i don't think people are always necessarily good at taking that step back um from what they think they need to make something yeah. happen um but i also know That One of the things I know that you're doing with David is doing an oncology hackathon with, you know, pretty sizable amount of money to win for or to to help the work that you do. I think it's $50,000, which is not a small amount. Can you talk about that? Where did the idea come from? How did you make it happen?
0: Oh, I I have absolutely no part in this whatsoever, I'm happy to say. Uh, It's actually David's boss, Sandy, uh, along with some of his colleagues. So they they started it, I want to say, nine, ten years ago, something like that. And I think partly it was to kind of help them get some legitimacy as legitimate researchers within this field of cancer research, which you know everybody thinks well it's got to be biologists testing cells to cure cancer and honestly i'll probably massacre the creation story behind this <laughs> so it might be best not to go on with it but yeah i mean it's it's a really cool thing that they do so i've been along as a passive observer just because i started to make these silly promo videos for sandy to be able to share out to give people a feel for what hackathon looks like
1: which if i can pause you there you say silly little videos but i actually think they're really relevant to this conversation because they're actually very inventive and very creative and uh, very accessible Uh, you don't just take a video of people having a conversation you find a funny angle that people can connect with like science's next top model Um, obviously (laughs) the pun in model being Not a sexy lady, sexy man, but a sexy (laughs) calculation. I think that's really true to your brand about bringing humor into what you do and making it fun and relatable. Yeah,
0: I would hope so. I know Sandy gets a real kick out of seeing these things every year. So (laughs) I I have to admit that I, I didn't necessarily think of myself as a particularly creative person until I started making these videos. And So this, I mean, they're they're not amazing in terms of the graphics and things I produce because I just tweak whatever tools I have available to me. But I'd like to think that the way they're put together and the the kind of the popular cultural references that I use help, as you say, make things a bit more accessible to people who probably wouldn't otherwise tune in.
1: You break a bit of a convention, whereas I think I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I always get the impression that whenever science is talked about, it's always very serious. You know, I actually watched those videos, all of them, um, <laughs> and really enjoyed it, and I did really think you brought it to life. And I guess I know I know we'd gone down the hackathon point but I think as you said it's not necessarily your own so perhaps we do go to the bit which is your own that video component and bringing science in a relatable way to people and breaking that convention that science is boring perhaps to some folk are there any other conventions like um that that you're trying to break through in the work that you're doing with scientists inc where you're bridging the gap between scientists and non-scientists
0: yeah I think so one thing I don't like to say is non-scientists Just because I feel that's a bit more subjective than objective. Mm -hmm. So in our case, I like to talk about non-specialists. And partly that that comes about because a lot of our, for example, our Taste of Science Festival is bringing people within certain specialities out to talk to an audience. And Quite often, that audience has other scientists in it. But um, like for me, it's it's a huge learning experience to go to anyone talking about astrophysics. I mean, what the hell do I know about astrophysics?
1: More than me, probably.
0: <laughs> I I wouldn't <laughs> put any money on that, frankly. But the, you know, the point is that we have people who have these unique specialities within a given field. And so anybody outside of that field can learn something from them. And so the way you are presenting that information to them, you feel more accepted in the audience if A, you can participate and say, oh, you know, it's not because I'm not it's not because I'm dumb that I don't get this. Look, I'm surrounded by people who are scientists themselves. But it's that I don't have regular access to this information. So, you know, why would I know this? There's a phrase that we use a lot which is leveling the playing field to make sure that everybody coming in feels like they are accepted when they're they're coming to one of our events they they don't need to feel like oh i need to have a certain level of knowledge before i come into this and i have to say we we've had a lot of surveys come back from events that we've had in the past where the people coming to our events they stopped after they got a high school diploma and that for me is it's amazing that they they feel comfortable and happy coming to our events and that they enjoy them So it feels like we must be doing something right.
1: We're very much in Scientist Inc. right now. And I I appreciate that we haven't really talked about what it is and what it does. But before we go (laughs) there, let me me pick up on levelling the playing field because I just want to go back to the David Hackathon piece just before we go, because obviously you talked about how In the work David does in doing mathematical modelling for cancer, they have to change the language and how they connect between mathematician and biologist. Mm -hmm. You also talked about how more voices from ethnic minorities is coming to the table now in the science world. And it's making me come to a question here that does science and its advancement depend on uniting people from all different places, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your profession, but does it depend on all the different minds coming to the table to to enable a breakthrough?
0: Hmm. I would say that science is absolutely better for having more diverse voices and viewpoints come to answering a singular question. So yes, I don't know if you would need absolutely everybody at the table, that sounds like a big ask, but Certainly in the the majority of fields of research, for example, you look at just basic health and technological developments, there is very little consideration given to the fact that women generally are different from men. And so therefore, they might need for different questions to be asked or for experiments to be framed in a different way to make sure that they get the best technology developed for them. And the best outcomes and that's you know that's one of the biggest and easiest kind of defining uh, demographic descriptions right and we find that you know drugs are not developed along those lines that all women are presented as just slightly smaller men and then we're shocked when drugs work differently when technology works differently and you find that by and large the outcomes for women are a lot worse just because of that so that's that's one very simple example. And then you get into people who are not representative of a given population trying to give, you know, that population advice on what they should do with regards to health and climate change and so on. So, yes, I, I think that absolutely you need to have more diverse voices offering their point of view, their insights, their understanding, their lived experience when creating experiments, when doing science.
1: Well, I think, I know, I think you also... You know, correct me, corrected me already, but it makes me correct myself even more when not to talk about non scientists. Because while we might not be in a lab with doing research looking through a microscope, we all have the potential to contribute to a scientific experiment where our knowledge or insights were helpful and appropriate. So we all have that potential to be useful, which does come into now talking about Scientist Inc, which is, I guess, helping people have that awareness and inviting them to the table and showing that science is fun. So those are just some of the words that I read on your website about Scientist Inc but let's talk about it now and in your own words what is Scientist Inc and why did you start it? Yeah
0: so I think for me it's a way to make science more inclusive and accessible because I think everybody has a right to good scientific information there's absolutely no excuse to have work that is largely taxpayer-funded Kind of held within the hands of just the people doing the research that makes absolutely no sense to me particularly since if you want people to understand the value of your work and you don't communicate it to them why should they care when it comes to election day who they vote in so it's it's also heartening to see that there is this a growing group of people who are now involved in science policy and making sure that science is well represented when speaking to politicians and speaking to representatives when you're talking about important scientific information. But yes, Scientists Inc. came about because there was, I think, a group of us kind of disappointed in, and I think at that time, it was particularly climate change and vaccine safety, the two things that were really irking me as people seemingly not understanding and subjects that were being really poorly politicized. So for me, it was it was thinking about how how do we get to connect with people? Because I think a lot of science communication maybe seems like you're talking at people and it feels like it needs to be a conversation. And so the, the two things that immediately came from this, so originally the, the group of us that founded the the organization were myself, David, and our friend, and at the time it was David's postdoc, uh, Arturo. And we put something random up on the then existing Google Plus <laughs> platform. And we, we got interest from somebody called Angela Ray, who apparently stalked David on Google Plus for his <laughs> scientific knowledge. And she wanted to help. And as somebody who wasn't a scientist, she's been an incredible help to our organization. In fact, she was the, the one who came up with the idea for the podcast. She came up with the, the kind of the format making sure it was, you know, friendly and familiar. And one of the things that we also touch upon within the podcast is a segment that we call The Dirt, mm-hmm. and that's asking the scientists to share a story where either their science went wrong or some self-deprecating experience. And we've had so many amazing stories about how people screwed up at conferences, how they dropped valuable tissues and things and then scrape them back up and <laughs> pretended that nothing had happened. Yeah. So there's all of these little touches that, you know, just made the scientists that we're talking to a bit more human. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that was the group of us that started out. And so we, we created the, the science festival, to help people have those conversations directly with scientists which I still think is something that is not common and it's not easy for people to be able to do.
1: And anyone can go to a, one of your science festivals, right? So obviously yeah. okay fine let's just put covid aside right now because that <laughs> yeah, and I know that you're still I know you're working something online but in its pre-covid days it's literally a festival in a room with different speakers coming to share what their science is what they do and anyone can come and anyone can talk to anyone while they're there
0: yeah absolutely and we go to the kind of venues that people already like to hang out in so there could be bars restaurants cafes we've had outdoor events on in florida uh, on beaches, where people got to hear about the science, and then they also got to feel socially responsible as they helped clean all the trash off the beach. Yes, yeah, so there's there's ways of making the events not just about talking about science, but you can be actively engaged. the process and so we picked venues where we we think that people would enjoy going a lot of them are family friendly so people can drag their kids along if they want to or they can you know ditch the kids because they want to go and have a drink and uh, whatever form of date night they want
1: (laughs) (laughs) whilst listening to a lecture on astrophysics yes yeah Exactly. Well, I, I mean, I really love the, I really love the idea, and I was just sitting here thinking, like, why aren't people salivating over a Taste of Science festival as as much as they are something like South by Southwest or the Consumer Electronics Show?
0: <laughs> there is a change for science events, and I think that's largely coming about because people are thinking much harder about, as I say, how you present this information to people. So if you pitch it as, oh, you know, this is a science lecture, you know, or people are going to be tuned out. If you're talking to them about a comedy show, for instance, or there are certain ways, like, there are people who communicate science through music and rap and art, So I think there are many ways you can do it whereby you're kind of slipping it into something that's a bigger, more entertaining affair. So to some degree, the the science part is not necessarily put up there as the the first and foremost thing. It's just this this is an awesome thing that you can go to. It's going to be hopefully fun and interesting and you might learn something by accident.
1: You know, thinking about that in mind and then I think what was it on the news recently they said that polar bears will be extinct by the end of the century and people that's that's a a science based i guess not conclude well conjecture and could you know it doesn't take a a a specialist to figure out that that's probably very much could happen if we look at what's happening to the polar ice caps and but then people i mean talking about myself because that's easier. I read something like that. That's horrific. You know, what can I do? And, you know, what I can do is within my environment, make changes to reduce emissions that I have from a CO2 perspective. But you know that seems to me that's that's where it i can start but how can i progress how can i increase my connection to that scientist is that some of the questions that you think about scientists inc to not just bring people into the conversation but how do they go a step further because i think that can be a sticking point for someone where they get it they can make individual change but how do they make more of a change
0: yeah i think uh we're talking about kind of actionable things to do as a result of the work. I don't know if that's something that we have specifically set ourselves up to do, but just during the course of inviting particular speakers. We have had people in the past talk about issues like climate change, which unsurprisingly, uh, in the part of Florida that we're in, people are very interested in, since a lot of us live very, very close to large bodies of water. And so when you have a researcher who comes out and says, "This, this is our understanding of X, Y and Z, and things that you can do at the end of this we have elections coming up or a bill passing for such and such a thing please make sure you look into this and you can do something so it's i think just during the nature of the events themselves people will quite often go to the speakers because they have an opportunity like after the talk is over a lot of the scientists will hang out and they'll carry on talking with people who are interested in the work. So while it's not something that we've built in ourselves, I think it comes about naturally just from starting a conversation.
1: Well, yeah, and you shared the power of what starting a dialogue or conversation can have once you start getting different perspectives in the mix in a room full of scientists, as you talked about in your own lab environment. So you're clearly someone who knows who you are, knows what you want, and you're fearless and uh, relentless at making it happen. <laughs> like you made change to pursue your PhD. You've made change to say, hey, I'm going to be a senior scientist researcher. I want to love the lab and, and be there and doing the work I do. But now, you know, it's a bit of ironic because you said you didn't want a man- managerial stance, but essentially you're a CEO of a spatial <laughs> venture, um, which is, you know, another break the you're breaking your own mould there in in pushing yourself into something that perhaps you didn't necessarily see yourself doing before. And can you bring to life that personal journey for yourself in some of the things that you've got right as you've taken this position of CEO and some of the things that are your biggest learnings that you would share with people who are listening, who might be thinking about breaking their own boundaries and stepping into to take on their own projects?
0: Oh, goodness, that's a lot. Yeah, so I joke about the fact that yes, as you say, I didn't want to be in a managerial position. And I didn't want to have to be fighting for funding, except now that as CEO of Scientists Inc, I do all of that, but I don't get paid for it. So there's an element of masochism in there, I think. (laughs) But I I think it's also kind of reflective of the fact that I really care about this work. And so much of it I do, because I am just bullish about wanting to get it done. Like I, I just, it feels like such important and necessary work that I don't feel like people can ignore the problems around inaccessible scientific information. So for me, that's that's a huge driver. But as for getting things wrong, I mean, goodness, like I just, it's a lot like science in a sense that a lot of these things are prone to failure and you keep tweaking things as you learn. I think what you have to understand is that those failures are going to happen, and that they're normal, and they're a necessary part of building anything. And you can either get disheartened by that, or you can learn from it and move on. And again, I will say this as someone who has a huge amount of privilege in the sense that we have a very healthy income in our household. And I don't have to worry about having to do this work for free. And I appreciate there are a lot of people out there who they do work that deserves to be paid because it is emotional and personal labor. And this is not necessarily a culture that's set up for that yet. There is science communication work and science outreach is not necessarily well acknowledged by the scientific community is something that we should be doing. And that's that's part of the work that we do is giving it legitimacy. But one of the things that was really heartening as a result of all of this is, I don't know if you saw at any point, there was a video from New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, and every science communicator out there felt vindicated watching this video as she took time out to specifically thank uh, and express her appreciation for the work that science communicators do not just scientists and hearing that from a world leader is yeah it's really heartening and um it's exactly the kind of voice that we need to say you know this this work is justified and it's necessary
1: yes i mean i'm not a world leader i Never will be. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I don't know if it's helpful to say I totally just um, totally get what you're trying to do and I really think it's important and I really want to attend um, one of your, your science festivals. But I also want to just go back to what you said about what it took for you to step into the CEO role. And you you clearly have a clear purpose that you're passionate about. And I think just – You know, learning from my own process at the moment as I go about setting up natural-born thinkers, it's very easy when you do fail or when you do just totally mess up or when you're feeling down about it to be like, okay, well, I'll just leave it there. If you don't have a clear purpose, that's probably where it will end because you can't refire yourself to say, no, I've got to learn from this because I've, I've got to go and make the change that I believe in. And I think um, just hearing what you said, that would, that component of having that purpose, having that cause of what you want to change or what you're really trying to do, that's something I totally relate to. last thing I guess is I will say is that I know that on your um, website you have the quote, nothing in life is to be feared, it is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. And that was Marie Curie uh, like 100 years ago. <laughs> and it still works. (laughs) That quote, perhaps even more important. Um, So with that quote, why do you have it there? And what's one piece of advice that you'd give everybody here who's trying to think differently and make a change to help them understand more and fear less?
0: I've got a feeling that I operate much more on kind of gut. And as I say, Surrounding myself with people who are very smart and very knowledgeable, and who really love what they do, it's a lot easier to do that work if you're surrounded by a, a community who also care about what they do. I mean, there's there's nothing like being lonely with, within a you know a field of work. So I think for me personally, it's understanding that you don't need to do this by yourself. And I, I think a little bit of fear is probably healthy. But at the same time, it's worth realizing that you, you have abilities and you have value, I think, if if you're prepared to kind of charge towards something. Because a lot of the time, I, I feel like I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> but, <laughs> and I, I'm sure I'm not unique in that. I would like to say that, you know, I'm I bet there are plenty of people out there who are afraid to admit that you know they 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 don't feel like they're qualified they don't feel like they deserve to be there but um and yes, I carry on doing it regardless
1: but that's that's really powerful because it also you know if we think about when we were children, a little bit of fear was exciting it was exhilarating. Mm-hmm. Um, but as adults, people seem to have more fear of fear. It's no longer fun. It's no longer exhilarating, and, and messing up just means the end of the world. And you know, if you have that mindset, you you lose the fun and and the sense of adventure, and and the, what could be if you if you could embrace that exhilaration and that healthy dose of fear. So I think it's um a really lovely point to to raise and a, a lovely point to end on because I think you've shared in your story that there've definitely been some scary moments um, but you've pushed through them and you continue to keep doing it, as you say. Uh, so, this has been such a great conversation, PB. I really thank you so much for the time today. And uh, for those listeners who are interested, um, please do check out Scientist Inc. online and maybe even try a podcast or two. And uh, I think you have an online Taste of Science or t- uh, Festival coming up as well, right, PB?
0: people can go to tasteofscience.org and we keep that updated
1: with anything that's coming up via Zoom. Okay. Yes, Zoom, the, the new Zoom. normal. Yeah, quite. <laughs> Oh. Okay, well, thank you so much, PB. Of course, it's been a joy. Thank you for listening to the Natural Born Thinkers podcast. More information about today's guest and any of the resources shared during a conversation can be found in the podcast show notes. To find out more about Natural Born Thinkers, please visit the Natural Born Thinkers website and follow us on Instagram at Natural Born Thinkers. Today's show was produced by Force9 Audio and podcast graphics were designed by Carl Gamble. Natural Born Thinkers is at the beginning of its journey and thank you for joining us on this adventure. Until the next time.